Good morning, Bethany. It's a joy to be with you guys again. On this past year, I was in Los Angeles attending the Master's Seminary. Um, it was my first year, and so now that that's complete, I'm actually going to be transferring to online, so I will be here with you all, um, and I'm really excited about that. Um, so if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me, we're going to be in 2 Samuel this morning. 2 Samuel 13, 37 through 15, 23. It's often said that preachers are the first people to be impacted by their, by their sermons because they're the ones studying it. Well, this week, as you see my, my uh, sermons entitled Sin as Its Consequences, I was happening to be speeding in Hudson, and I got a letter in the mail this week. So I got it from the brand new Cameron Ranchero. So sin does truly have its consequences. So what we'll be studying this morning is the sad tale of the state of David's kingdom and his poor relationship with his son Absalom. When we go through this portion of scripture, it's very important to remember that narratives or these stories that we see in scripture can be difficult passages for us to understand since we are 21st century believers and are pretty far removed from the original context. Narratives do not tell us the point of the story which is why so many readers get frustrated in the Old Testament. Whereas in the New Testament, the authors tell us the point they are making very clearly. This is why the application is much easier to understand in the New Testament. Even so, we must remember 2 Timothy 3.16, which states, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. There is plenty of application to be drawn from our text this morning, but we need to remember that narrative is usually descriptive rather than prescriptive. It is describing events rather than prescribing you to do something with your life. There are theological principles to be drawn from our text, but we must be careful to not turn the descriptive events into prescriptions that were not the intent of the original author. So I found that's helpful to remember that in your own time in the Word. First and Second Samuel are really to be studied as one book. Uh, instead of two. This is because the theological themes the author is conveying will be much clearer when they are read together. So the overarching theme of this book, 2 Samuel, is that Yahweh chose to bless Israel through the reign of King David because of the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel 7. Despite David's sin, he showed himself to be faithful to the Lord with a repentant heart. The first 10 chapters have shown David's trust and his obedience to Yahweh. So if you would hang with me for a second, I'd like to briefly review what we've been through. So David is anointed as king in Hebron in chapter 7, and sorry, chapter 2. Abner makes a covenant with David in chapter 3. So David becomes king over all of Israel in chapter 6. The Ark of the Covenant is brought to Jerusalem in chapter 6. Yahweh establishes the seed of David which seed means generation or the lineage of David in chapter 7. So then finally, David shows kindness to Mephibosheth in chapter 9. Now, there's a huge 90-degree turn in the narrative in chapter 11 with David's great sin with Bathsheba against Uriah. Following in those chapters from 13 to 20, the judgment that was pronounced upon David is unleashed. So when we look at this account this morning in our passages, we must remember this narrative takes place in the larger account of David's story. 
Each detail matters as it fits into the larger narrative of the judgment upon the house of David. And for those of you who are like me and maybe struggle a little bit in the Old Testament, you might need a brief refresher of who these people are that we're going to be looking at this morning. So last week, Matt brilliantly took us through the family troubles of David. His son Absalom is Tamar's brother, and Absalom was enraged at her rape by her half-brother Amnon. Therefore, Absalom waited two years for his revenge and killed Amnon. A commentator helpfully points out to us that in the book of Judges in chapters 17 to 21, rape and civil war were present in Israel when they did not have a king. David's kingdom had gotten so bad, it was as though there was no ruling king over Israel. David ultimately failed in his duty as the king of Israel by not bringing judgment against Amnon for the rape of Tamar, nor did he bring judgment against Absalom for murdering Amnon. Not to mention, he failed in his duties as a father to discipline his children for acting in such sinful ways. So soon David and the rest of the kingdom will be reaping the consequences of sin. So our passage this morning begins with Absalom who fled from David for three years because of killing Amnon. So let's read verses 37 and 39 in chapter 13. Now Absalom had fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there for three years. And the heart of David was consumed with going out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he had died. This was not good. In Hebrew, it's really a bit challenging to interpret verse 39. Many translations say that David longed to go out to Absalom. This is really missing the point of what the author is trying to convey, which is that David was consumed with going out against Absalom. David was furious that Amnon had died, and seemingly he wanted to kill Absalom. These three verses are showing that this judgment against the house of David is being fulfilled, just as Yahweh had said in chapter 12, verse 10. So now the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Surprisingly, God is never mentioned here in chapter 13. Most likely, the author of 2 Samuel is making the point that both men are acting with sinful motives apart from the will of the Lord. So then, now we're in chapter 14, the narrative shifts to Joab, the commander of David. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart was inclined towards Absalom. So Joab sent to Tekoa and brought a wise woman from there and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments now and do not anoint yourself with oil, but be like a woman who has been mourning for the dead many days. Then you shall go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words into her mouth. It's really unclear to us as to why Joab wants to facilitate this reconciliation between David and Absalom, but nonetheless, he's the one that takes charge. Again, the Hebrew is kind of unclear, but the best interpretation would be that the king's heart was inclined towards Absalom. I concluded while studying that this is not a positive inclination, but rather a spiteful, antagonistic inclination, which we will shortly see in the context. But maybe those of you who are in business can relate to Joab here. Uh, He was a professional military strategist, meaning that he would define the problem. 
he would analyze the problem, he would come up with a strategy to achieve his desired result. But unfortunately, Joab never sets aside his commanding role because he speaks to the Tekoite woman in verse three as a superior would give orders to an inferior. The woman goes along with his scheme and goes before the king. Let's read verses six through seven. And your servant woman had two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field and there was no one to deliver between them. So one struck the other and put him to death. And behold, the whole family has risen against your servant woman. And they say, hand over the one who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed and destroy their heir also. Thus they will extinguish my coal which remains so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. This woman's story, or really as Alistair Begg says, her performance is eerily similar to a well-known narrative that we all know in Genesis chapter four, the story of Cain and Abel. The murders in both these stories occurred with two brothers alone in a field. In each of these scenarios, there was an appeal made to an authority figure. It is very possible this Tekoa woman took the plot of Cain and Abel and tried to make it sound like her own story. This was really a brilliant tactic on the part of Joab because these famous narratives that are taken from the Torah, the first five books, were used by the king to administer justice in Israel. David would have thought about the story of Cain and Abel and utilized it to obtain justice for this woman. This is because the king was supposed to act as God's human agent. That was David's role. But the glaring issue here though is that David is guilty because he refused to bring his back his own son Absalom. So in this woman's made up scenario, David knows he's a hypocrite, so the woman boldly calls him out. Let's read verses 11 through 13. Then she said, please let the king remember Yahweh your God, so that the avenger of blood will not continue to bring about ruin, so that they would not destroy my son. And he said, as Yahweh lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, please let your servant woman speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, speak. Then the woman said, why have you thought up such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one is, who is guilty in that the king does not bring back his banished one. This woman has been exceptionally bold to the point where it may have been dangerous on her behalf to continue talking. But in verse eight, David gave her a really general statement about solving the problem. Go to your house and I'll give a command concerning you. Just kind of whatever, just get away from me, I'll give you a command. But this woman wasn't gonna accept any kind of non-committal answer from the king. So she continues on with her story. The king gives this response that is non-satisfactory again, so she presses the king even further in verse, in verse 12. I mean, the woman is relentless. And then verse 13, she basically goes as far as to call the king guilty. But notice the statement she makes at the end of verse 14. Yet God does not take away life, but thinks up ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. She is saying that David, as Yahweh's kingly representative on earth, needs to act in the same manner as Yahweh. God does not, God does make harsh judgments against sinners, 
but he also has put in place mechanisms for reconciliation to take place. We get to the end of the conversation and David realizes he has just been manipulated by the woman into permitting a safe return of Absalom. By giving his verdict to the woman, he really just indicted himself. The plot was well schemed and her performance worked. The woman there uses the rare statement, the people of God, really to say that this dispute does not just have consequences for the father-son relationship, but these consequences will affect the entire kingdom and could lead to a civil war. And then at the end of verse 11, David swears an oath on behalf of Yahweh that not one hair of the woman's son shall fall to the ground. David immediately knows Joab put the woman up to the task. Since Joab was a military strategist, he would have known that David loves the Lord. Any commitment David makes to God, he will keep. David remembers his oath to Yahweh and tells Joab to bring back Absalom. This is really where things take a turn for the worse in our narrative this morning. Let's read verse 24 together. However, the king said, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. David does keep his word to Yahweh and to the woman. He, he brings back Absalom but there's strings attached. A commentator states, return had been accomplished, but reconciliation between a father and son had not. However, shows the sad state of David's heart. David's loathing for Absalom bubbles to the surface when he refuses to see him. Pastor Steve Lawson often says, what's down in the well comes out of the bucket. What's down in the heart will make its way out of the mouth and in our actions. So even after not seeing his son for an entire three years, David's hatred and bitterness have continued to fester in his heart. So let me ask you all, what sins or sin are you festering in your heart this morning? What sin is not being dealt with in your life? Puritan John Owen famously stated, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He famously wrote the book titled On the Mortification of Sin. This book deals with mortifying sin, or really, in other words, putting sin to death. It, it constantly, this book points back to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Of course, John Owen doesn't disregard human responsibility. He just constantly shows that we need the Spirit to give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. But festering sin was not the only problem in this verse. David also failed to demonstrate reconciliation with Absalom. Since David chooses not to reconcile with his son, we will shortly see that sin truly does have its consequences. Look at me, uh, if you would, to verses 25 and 26 of chapter 14. At first glance, when we look at these verses, these verses seem to kind of be just randomly placed into the narrative. But there is a purpose of this description of Absalom that does carry a lot of significance. Verse 25, now in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised. From the sole of his foot to the top of his head, there was no defect in him. 
when he shaved the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he shaved it, for it was so heavy on him that he shaved it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. Absalom here is described, the 200 shekels are probably about five pounds of hair. We're not sure why this is included, whether it's exact or it's exaggerated by the author, but the point is that due to his physical stature, he became popular among the people in the kingdom. As readers, though, we need to stop because we need to be concerned about these two verses. Why is there such an emphasis on the appearance of Absalom? Well, in 1 Samuel 9-2, the same wording is used to convey Saul's appearance. Now, he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. This is not an encouragement to the reader. Rather, the author is reminding us that the people are not to be looking at the outward appearance of the individual. Rather, they're to be looking at the heart, just like the Lord does. Really, Absalom's appearance would actually distract those who are ungodly, and they would actually fall after him. This description is far from positive. It is the beginning of a huge problem that's about to occur in the kingdom. By the author comparing Absalom's appearance to Saul's appearance, he is saying that they share sinful attributes. Judgment is coming to the house of David. The narrative continues. And Absalom is listed to have three sons and a daughter who he names Tamar. Once again, we need to stop and consider what is being said here. So back in Genesis 38, Judah sinned with someone named Tamar. In 2 Samuel 13, as Matt took us through last week, another Tamar sinned against by her brother Amnon, which led to murder and Absalom being kicked out of the kingdom. Now, in our passage in 2 Samuel 14, Absalom names his daughter Tamar. The commentators debate whether this was out of love for his sister or because he wanted to spite David by reminding him of what happened. I tend to lean more towards that view, that it was out of spite. Either way, repetitions like this in narrative convey to us important meanings that we need to understand. There is a red flag here and we should soon expect disaster to follow. By this point, Absalom had gone for two full years without seeing David. Absalom was ready to see him, and he manipulated Joab into doing his bidding. Absalom, used to getting whatever he wanted, he would use whatever means necessary to get whatever he desired. So what's the narrative say? Well, Absalom burned down Joab's land, so that forced Joab to meet with him face to face. After five years, Absalom and David finally meet. But notice that the text reads that Absalom approached the king rather than the, his father. Absalom, or David kisses Absalom, but this is really to be interpreted as a royal greeting. This is not a meeting of reconciliation. It's a very awkward meeting. Notice that Nothing is said to one another. No words are exchanged. No apologies here are given. No tears are shed. There's really just an acknowledgement of the other person's existence. 
there is still a broken relationship. So before we move on here to chapter 15, let's take a minute to discuss David's failure of reconciliation. He not only failed as a king to reconcile with the sinning party, but he failed as a father to reconcile with a wayward son. David was just as guilty of sin as Absalom. There's really an important application here that needs to be drawn from us for the church today. Genuine repentance leads to genuine reconciliation. The only way for there to be true repentance is to have true forgiveness. Forgiveness is to pardon sin and also a promise not to hold sin against others. I want to read that again. Forgiveness is to pardon sin and also a promise not to hold sin against others. David was forgiven by God for his sin with Bathsheba because he came before God in repentance. However, there were still severe consequences for his sin. It's important to remember that forgiveness is not just a passive thing like forgetting, but it's rather this active thing such as not remembering. In Isaiah 43, 25, Yahweh says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's not, this, not that uh, God just magically forgets about our sin. Rather, he chooses not to remember it because he chooses not to hold it against those who repent. This genuine forgiveness will lead to genuine reconciliation. The, the goal of reconciliation, guys, please get this, is that it's not conflict resolution, but, but rather it's to transform that conflict into a peaceful, loving, and edifying relationship with the other person. But unfortunately, many people in the church at large have seen forgotten what this biblical reconciliation is. Today, you might hear something like, will you forgive me? Yeah, I'll forgive you. And then both parties just kind of go their separate ways. Uh, Or another popular saying, well, I kind of just covered it in love. In other words, I just swept it under the rug and just kind of pretended it doesn't exist. This is a wrong view of the love covering principle. In the Old Testament, To cover means to forgive someone else. There still needs to be private confrontation if someone has sinned against you. But after this confrontation, both people need to meet together and restore the relationship in a Christ-honoring way. Matthew 18, 15 is clear that the only two parties that should be involved in step one of the discipline process are the sinning brother and the one confronting them. This passage, I wanna say this kindly, guys. This passage doesn't say, run to the elders and step one and have them solve all your problems for you. No, you're to confront that person in love. But by failing to do this, you're holding a grudge against the other person. Spurgeon had strong words on forgiveness. Do you find it difficult to forgive one who has wronged you? Then you will find it difficult to get to heaven. Wow. Jesus himself states emphatically in Matthew 5, 22 to 24, therefore if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, 
Leave your altering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. John MacArthur has said about this passage that as long as there is internal sin, outward acts of worship are not acceptable before God. These sacrifices that Israel made were intended to display a restored relationship with God. So for Israel to present an offering before God, but, but fail to reconcile with their brother, I mean, that, that's hypocrisy. In the new covenant, with us as believers in the church, this concept is still present. Reconciliation with a brother must re- precede worshiping God. Christians should be the fastest at reconciling because we know that by our very nature, we deserve eternal punishment. We have been reconciled to God through Christ. Romans 5, 10, and 11, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Christ has put on display the greatest example of reconciliation we could ever know. Returning to Christ, chapter 14 shows David's failure of reconciliation. We will now see how in chapter 15, Absalom fails at restoring peace with David. So Absalom has a lust for power, and his worldly ambition is not only against the kingdom of David, but it's against the will of God. It really seems like his ambition and rebellion are stemmed from the strong resentment he's festered in his heart towards David. That's because during this five-year period, he, he's come to hate his father, so he plots to take the kingdom from him. So let's read verses three through four in chapter 15. <clears throat> then Absalom would say to him, see your words are good and right, but no, no man listens to you on part of the king. Then Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, then every man who has any case or judgment could come to me and I would justify him. Here, Absalom is really just positioning himself to be the go-to man. He, he surrounds himself with an army and horses to look important in verse one. And then he plays some dirty politics and tells the people, you know, perhaps with a sigh. So he's outside the gate. So he's positioning himself to be the go-to man for the kingdom. A- Absalom's gonna take this kingdom from his father one way or another. He says, um, where is it, in verse uh, four, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. You know, just, oh, if only David was doing his job, then people would be able to be, uh, he would actually listen to them. Since he was positioned right outside the gate, the people would just go to him instead of David. In a matter of time, he won the hearts of the people. Absalom then makes up a lie about going to make a vow to the Lord in Hebron. Sadly, this is the last time that David would even mention the name of God. Let's read verse 16 of chapter 15. So the king went out and all of his household with him, but the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. David realizes at this point, this takeover has been successful and he needs to get out. He packs up with his servants and his household and he goes. However, he chooses to leave behind 10 concubines that will unfortunately be disastrous for David as we'll see in the coming weeks. Sadly, this is where our narrative ends for us this morning. David is on the run out of his own kingdom. The word of Yahweh has come to pass from 2 Samuel 12, 11, which states, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. 
Absalom has taken over, and he has no plans of reconciling with his father. He used his own means to reach his own end. He has failed at restoring peace with David and with God. Now, I'm sure you're all wondering, how in the world does this narrative apply to me today? Well, I think it's better for us to understand the significance of David. So let me briefly read to you from the fall narrative in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. In the Garden of Eden, God caused a serpent cursed the serpent, promised enmity between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, Eve. The, the seed is the word meaning generation or lineage. The theme of Genesis traces this seed until it ends with the line of Judah in the last chapter of Genesis. But much later on, David comes. He is one of the most notable people in this line of blessing. But as we've just seen, David's still sained with sin. Second Samuel has really just made it clear to us he is not the chosen seed who will bruise the head of the serpent. There would have to be another. Much later, a man born of a virgin in Bethlehem, they called his name Jesus in Matthew 1 because he came to save his people from their sins. At the, every point David failed in his life, Jesus has lived his life on earth perfectly. Jesus Christ is the chosen seed who has come to crush the serpent. Jesus Christ is the son of God who has lived a perfect life, went to the cross, and made a substitutionary atonement for our sins. For all those who believe in him, they're promised reconciliation to God and eternal life with God. God didn't need to be reconciled to us. No, we needed to be reconciled to God. But why did we need to be reconciled to God? Because we are all born sinners. The Apostle Paul clearly lays this out for us in Romans 3. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps or snakes is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, in the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Not only are we born with a sin nature, but we're also born hating God. We want nothing to do with God. All we want in our sinful state is to keep sinning, this is why I believe Absalom is the prime example for us of the sinful, depraved nature we inherit. It's you know, really easy for us now to look back a few thousand years ago and make this judgment call on Absalom, yet everyone in this room was at one point headed to the same eternal destination as Absalom. If you do not know if your relationship with God has been restored, you need to repent and believe in the only one who can save you, Jesus Christ. If you have already trusted in Christ, you are called to walk just as he walked. He has commanded us to put off sin and put on righteousness. Choosing to walk in darkness as a believer will have deadly consequences. You won't lose your salvation if you're a genuine believer. Philippians 1.6 promises that God will perfect the work in your life. But also know if you are a genuine believer, God will not just let you walk in sin. 
God promises to forgive those who bring forth genuine repentance, but God might not shield you from the consequences of sin. Let this narrative serve as a warning to us to not walk in sin. Let it also serve as a testimony to the grace and the forgiveness that God freely offers to those who come to him in repentance and faith. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just come before you and this morning we just stand in awe at the forgiveness you have offered to us through Christ Jesus. God, it is truly amazing to look back at the scope of Scripture and to see that every promise that you promised has come true from the seed in Genesis to Christ being born from a virgin in Matthew 1. Lord, it is just incredible. And we are so thankful this morning that we have a Savior. He is risen, and God, we have been restored to God by faith. And we, we just come before you and just thank you this morning. God, I, I pray for those who, who might be here right now who do not have a restored relationship with you, who are, who are still on an eternal destination, and they're headed towards hell. Lord, I pray that you would soften their hearts this morning. Help them to come to a knowledge of the truth. Father, I pray for us who are believers and God just, just struggle and with sin. Lord, I pray that you would mortify sin in our lives. That God, we would be killing the sin. That we would not put up with any of it. But Lord, we would put it to death so we can have close communion with you. God, I just thank you for your word and that, that God, through it, we can come to a deeper knowledge of you and that we can have a, a close relationship with you. Father, I pray for us as we go out this week that, that Lord, we would not forget that what, you, what you've shown us this morning, that, that, Lord, sin truly has consequences. And, and God, I just, just thank you that, that you discipline those whom you love and that God you, you discipline those who are yours so that we can walk with you once again God just thank you for this morning please go before us the rest of this day and I pray this in your son's name amen